Hopkins. You might notice we have a number of folks from Hopkins addressing us today. But Todd has been an endocrinologist who's been very interested in bone disease, and he's going to talk to us about changes in management of osteoporosis, vitamin D deficiency in the HIV-infected patient. Todd? Thanks, John, and thanks for the invitation to come speak to you today. So I'm going to be drilling down on some of the uh, topics that uh, Dr. Ritchie uh, alluded to in her, in her talk before lunch, and I'm going to be talking about osteoporosis, which is, uh, of course, a very important disease of aging, and also touching about on uh, vitamin D deficiency with respect to bone. So here are my disclosures, and most of them are related to developing educational presentations regarding bone and HIV. So at the end of the uh, half hour, what uh, I would want the learners, you all, to be able to do is describe which infect HIV-infected patients should get screened for osteoporosis, summarize secondary causes of bone loss, and also dis discuss uh, optimal treatment strategies for HIV-infected people with osteoporosis. Okay, so here's my question. There's, this is the question that's going to begin it, and also we'll end it. So what tool can be used to calculate a person's absolute risk of fracture over 10 years? So we have, number one, the Framingham osteoporosis score. Number two, the bone fragility score. Number three, the FRAC score. And number four, the study of osteoporotic fracture. So it uh, looks like there's, uh, most people thought it was the FRAC score, but there were some other people who, uh, who thought it was other things. So we'll be coming back to this, of course. So as we know, uh, osteoporosis is really uh, one of the quintessential diseases of aging. This uh, is, uh, the, shows the fracture rates in the general population. And what you see with the women on the left and the men on the right is that after about age 65 in women and about age 70 in men, the risk of fracture increases quite dramatically. And fractures are not only a, a source of uh, morbidity, but they're also a big source of mortality. And the mortality after hip fracture is really uh, pretty high and doesn't go down even 10 years after the, the event. So what about in HIV-infected patients? And so I'll be starting off with a case. And this is a gentleman that I see in, in my lipodystrophy clinic. Uh, he's a 62-year-old white male. He was referred to my clinic for body fat changes. Long history of HIV with a low Nader CD4 cell count, uh, doing well on, uh, on AAA. He has a history of hypogonadism, uh, which is well replaced on transdermal testosterone. A history of COPD, fortunately he stopped smoking, but has a long packed year history. And gets multiple steroid courses because of the steroid, uh, the, the uh, COPD. He has no history of fracture and no height loss. So the first question, would you screen this patient for osteoporosis? So the overwhelming majority of you say yes, 88%. Uh, 
and so let's take a look at the uh, guidelines for screening. And so these are the guidelines from the National Osteoporosis Foundation. And uh, so people should be screened if they have a history of fragility fracture, uh, women who are 65 and older, men who are 70 or older, and if the person's a postmenopausal woman uh, who's not 65 or a man who's between 50 and 70, uh, the person should be screened if there's concern based on their risk factors. And if you look at this document, there's a whole long list of, of risk factors that should be considered. And when this uh, document was made, underwent a major revision in 2008, if you looked at this big table, you wouldn't see HIV on there. If you looked at the same document in 2011, you didn't see HIV on there. Uh, and uh, we know that the risk of, of fracture is higher in HIV. And so this is the study that, uh, meta-analysis that I did a few years ago, looking at the uh, risk of osteoporosis in a bunch of cross-sectional studies. And what this uh, study showed is that the overall prevalence of osteoporosis was about 15% in the HIV-infected people. And compared to their HIV-uninfected controls, the risk was about three and a half fold higher. And keep in mind that the average age in these studies was about 41. So the burden is quite high. And uh, this high rate of osteoporosis likely, uh, in part, accounts for this higher risk of fracture that you see. Uh, Dr. Ritchie showed you the Spanish study, which just was published. This is a study that we did from the Mass General uh, data set. And what you see on the left, women on the right, men. And after about age uh, 40 in women and about 30 in men, you start to see that the HIV-infected group, which is the, the yellow curve on the top, have a higher risk of fracture compared to their HIV-uninfected control population. And what's remarkable here is that the difference between the HIV-positive and HIV-negative actually increases over, over the lifespan. So you get this HIV-aging interaction. So as a result of, of more and more data coming out showing that the risk of fracture is higher in HIV, a group of us got together and uh, came up with these uh, recommendations. And what we suggested is that uh, all HIV-infected postmenopausal women and uh, men 50 and older should get a DEXA. And actually, in the, the 2013 revision of the uh, NOF guidelines, in that long list of tables, for the first, few, first time, HIV is listed among the, the factors that uh, will that would, would prompt uh, bone density screening. So this gentleman had uh, a lot of reasons to get a, a, a bone density scan. In addition to his HIV status, he was uh, hypogonadal. Uh, he's on replacement therapy. He had COPD uh, and also uh, received multiple steroid courses. And when I did the DEXA, this is the result that I got. So the lumbar T-score, uh, the L1 through L4, was minus 2.2. Femoral neck T-score, minus 2.1. Total hip T-score, minus 2.3. So what do these mean? So we define osteoporosis as a T-score uh, less than or equal to minus 2.5. And so this is the, the uh, number of standard deviations away from a person at their peak bone mineral density, that's around, around age 30. Osteopenia is a T-score between uh, minus 1 and minus 2.5. And normal is uh, greater than minus 1. Now, there's this nice relationship between uh, bone density by DEXA and fracture. So an increased risk of fracture about by one and a half to threefold for each standard deviation decrease. Uh, so 
DEXA does tell you something about bone mineral density, but it doesn't tell you everything about, uh, about fracture, but it doesn't tell you everything about fracture. So only about 50% of fracture risk is explained by DEXA. So what this means is that there's this whole other 50% that's not explained, and this has to do with things that, that the DEXA can't pick up, like bone quality, for example, uh, like falls, for example, that's obviously not picked up by the DEXA. So it's important to keep that in mind because there's a large population of people who have fractures who actually ha are not in the osteoporotic range. The other thing to keep in mind with DEXA is that these scores were first validated in postmenopausal women and later in older men, but in people younger than 50, they, the, the DEXA has not really been validated. So we, in that population, we use the Z-score instead of the T-score. And the Z-score is the comparator population is age match. And the uh, cutoff is minus two, so less than minus two, but we don't call them osteoporotic. We call them low bone mineral density for a given age. So I'm going to touch briefly on the pathophysiology, but, uh, but my focus here is management. So like a lot of complications in HIV infection, the pathophysiology is multifactorial. You have HIV, HIV disease-related factors uh, like inflammation and viral proteins. We know from in vitro studies that uh, inflammatory cytokines like TNF-alpha and IL-6 increase bone resorption and decrease bone formation. Uh, viral proteins do the same thing. Medication factors are important. We know that tenofovir in uh, many studies in HIV patients, studies, uh, PrEP studies in HIV uninfected patients, that tenofovir has a detrimental effect on bone mineral density and also uh, has been shown to increase the risk of fracture. Certain PIs uh, also have an independent risk of, of lowering bone mineral density, uh, and adazanavir, ritonavir is one of them. And with ART initiation, somewhat curiously, there's a drop in bone mineral density of about 2 to 6% in the first 96 weeks. Now, this levels out after 96 weeks, uh, but does not return back to baseline. So it's a decent uh, bone loss. Uh, right after antiretroviral initiation. And then the other uh, major set of factors are patient-related factors, such as low body weight, smoking, alcohol use, opiate use, hepatitis C co-infection, physical activity, hypogonadism, vitamin D deficiency. So all these things, uh, some of these things are, are more common in HIV population and undoubtedly contribute to the risk of osteoporosis and fracture. So let's talk about this guy. We know that he has, he has osteopenia and he's got some risk factors, he's 63. So let's talk about the next step. So would you treat him with a bisphosphonate, treat with calcium and vitamin D, work up secondary causes of low BMD, and, or do give him the full Monty, treating him with uh, bisphosphonate, calcium, vitamin D, and work up secondary causes of low BMD simultaneously. So uh, some people are going to want to give him just calcium and vitamin D. That's almost the majority. And then some people want to do the uh, give him everything. Uh, and almost no one wants to treat him with a bisphosphonate just alone. So um, going back to the NOF guidelines about who to treat, what the NOF does recommend is to treat people who have a hip or vertebral fracture. So that makes sense. 
three people who have osteoporosis by DEXA scores, so uh, T scores less than or equal to minus 2.5 at the femoral neck total hip or spine. Or if you're in this osteopenia range, the thing to do is to uh, calculate someone's probability of having a fracture over the next 10 years. And if the probability of a, of a hip fracture is 3% or greater, or the probability of an all osteoporotic fracture, and that is the spine, hip, forearm, or uh, upper arm, uh, at, those th at those four sites, if it's 20% or greater, then that person would, would qualify for treatment. And to do this, we use something called the FRAC score. And uh, how you calculate this is you can Google FRACs, and you uh, come to this uh, website that's in Sheffield, England, and you go under Calculation Tool, and you choose your country, and the, the, the demographics that you're looking for. And then you fill in these boxes. Uh, and so you'll, you see the information that's needed, uh, age, sex, weight, uh, height, previous fracture, parental hip fracture, current smoking, glucocorticoids, rheumatoid arthritis, secondary osteoporosis, alcohol, and then femoral neck bone mineral density. And then you press calculate, and uh, you get the person's 10-year risk. And this is this gentleman that we've been talking about his risk of major osteoporotic fracture was 18%, and hip fracture was 4%, 4.1%. So because his hip fracture uh, score was greater than 3%, he would uh, qualify for treatment for osteoporosis. So this is a very useful tool to, to really uh, get a sense of absolute risk of fracture, rather than trying to, to deal with, uh, with just with bone density alone, which gives you a sense of relative But even though this guy has, uh, has qualified for treatment, we need to do something first. We need to evaluate the secondary causes of low bone mineral density. And so I've listed the things that I typically check for uh, in patients who I've identified with low bone mineral density. And the ones in yellow is sort of, those are the stand, my standard workup, looking for vitamin D deficiency, hyperparathyroidism, subclinical hyperthyroidism, hypogonadism, and phosphate wasting. The others I do if the clinical situation uh, warrants it. And I want to, of these, I want to focus on two in particular. One is vitamin D deficiency, and, and really severe vitamin D deficiency. And the other is phosphate wasting, uh, which uh, can be measured with a fractional excretion of phosphate. And the reason why I want to focus on these is that when someone has low bone mineral density in the presence of these problems, the issue may not be osteoporosis at all. It may be osteomalacia. And so what's osteomalacia? So this is impaired bone mineralization. The mo bone matrix is fine, so the collagen matrix is fine, but it's the calcium phosphate crystals that, that haven't gone into the matrix to give it some strength. And so the whole osteomalacia syndrome is accompanied by weakness, fracture, pain, anorexia, weight loss, but of course you have some people who don't have the whole osteomalacia syndrome. Now, the important thing with osteomalacia is that uh, it's not treated with bisphosphonates. And in fact, bisphosphonates can make it worse by further impairing bone mineralization. It's treated with, if it's vitamin, severe vitamin D deficiency, obviously it's treated with vitamin D and also calcium to remineralize the bone. And then if it's, if it's uh, uh, phosphate wasting, as we see sometimes with our patients on tenofovir, uh, it's uh, giving phosphate back, uh, probably switching out their tenofovir, 
and giving uh, calcium to remineralize and checking to see whether or not they're vitamin D deficient because that will make their phosphate ratios lower. So it really is the most important differential diagnosis for in low BMD, and this should be done before you start the person on treatment. That way you can correct it if you want to. So let's digress a little bit and talk about, uh, talk about RB. And uh, he's a 51-year-old with the history of HIV diagnosed in 2001, a low Nader CD4 cell count, doing well on, on a tripla, but really hasn't had a great CD4 cell recovery. He smokes three to four glasses of wine a day. He drinks, whoops. <laughs> That's uh, tricky to do. Uh, but he manages to do it anyway. But <laughs> he drinks uh, three to four glasses of wine a day. He's a former smoker. He is a sister with osteoporosis, uh, and, but doesn't have any fracture. He's had two traumatic fractures, one when he was on a sailboat in rough seas and fell backwards and, and, uh, and fractured his arm. And once when he was uh, glade skiing, and, you know, skiing through trees and uh, took a wrong turn and hit a tree. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily qualify for osteoporotic fractures. But he got a, given by virtue of his age, he got a DEXA scan. In, and uh, his lumbar T-score was in the osteoporotic range at minus 2.9. Femoral neck is minus 1.4. Total hip minus 0 0.8. So when you put FRAX, when you calculate FRAX on this guy, and keep in mind, FRAX is looking specifically at the femoral neck. Uh, his all osteoporotic uh, fracture is 4.7%. Hip fracture is 0.5. So very necessarily. So with the secondary workup, everything looked fine, including uh, his fractional excretion of FOS, uh, except for his vitamin D, which was low at 15. So unlike a lot of other things, we're between 20 and 30. And what this is based on is the level uh, below which, so 20 is the level below which PTH starts to rise uh, as, as the vitamin D gets successively lower. And so it's a biological way of defining sufficiency or, or insufficiency. So we know that vitamin D deficiency is very common in the general population, and there are a lot of risk factors, darker skin, uh, your latitude, how much sun exposure you get, adiposity, uh, so a lot of uh, different risk factors. But in the HIV population, the other, another major risk factor is antiretroviral exposure. And here, uh, favarins is, is probably the biggest uh, culprit. And so this is a study that we did a few years back showing that the, the difference between uh, the drop in, in uh, 25D in efavirenz-treated patients uh, versus non-efavirenz-treated patients was about 5 nanograms per mil. Uh, so it's a small difference, but uh, possibly clinically significant. It's about half the difference uh, between uh, summer and winter, for example, in, in white uh, people. So. Uh, we identified this gentleman who has vitamin D deficiency. So what's the optimal vitamin D replacement uh, for this patient? So vitamin D3, that's cholecalciferol, 4,000 international units a day. D3, 2,000 international units a day. Ergocalciferol, that's D2, 50,000 units uh, weekly for eight weeks. Or the optimal replacement regimen is
to sort of split here. Most people would go with their ergo approach to, to uh, fill up the tank sum uh, and then split between 2,000 and then uh, the, the agnostic view. So typically, uh, what, what people generally uh, think about with vitamin D deficiency is uh, filling up the tank and then maintaining. So a replacement and then maintained approach. And most people fill up the tank with ergocalciferol because this is what we can get prescription. Uh, 50,000 units, uh, one or two times a week for eight to 12 weeks. Or you can do cholecalciferol daily. And then once you have gotten, up to, gotten them up to a, a sufficient level, above 30, then you, uh, you can give them periodic ergocalciferol, like once or twice a month. Or you can just do cholecalciferol. Now, there's a lot that we don't know about how the best to increase vitamin D and what the best approach is. And I want to bring your attention to a study which really brought that fact home to me. It's a very extreme example, but I think it's one that's very instructive. And so um, this is a, a study that was done in Australia, it was published a few years back, non-HIV in, in postmenopausal women. And what they did is they, they took a very extreme approach. They said, okay, we're going to try to attenuate the drop that you see in vitamin D levels uh, in the wintertime and give people a massive dose of vitamin D, a half a million units, once, once a year. And, um, and see how things go. And, and we're hopefully, uh, if our hypothesis is correct, they'll have the people randomized to vitamin D will get fewer fractures and fewer falls. And falls, of course, is another... Uh, another vitamin D responsive uh, endpoint. So what you see here is what, the what happened to the vitamin D levels. And you see the, the line on the bottom is placebo, and there's some seasonal variation with the vitamin D levels in the placebo group. And you see in the top line is that people's vitamin D level went up uh, quite high initially in the first month, came down. And, but all the time remained in that 30 to 50 range, which we think is sort of the sweet spot. And then when they, the next year came around, again, a big dose, and it comes back down. So it seems like these people were in a pretty good target range. So absolutely contrary to their hypothesis, the people who had vitamin D actually had a higher rate of falls and tended to have a higher rate of fractures. So this is uh, really was really pretty uh, stunning, uh, to me anyway, uh, in that their level was in the range that we want it to be. So I think that what this study does tell me is that we don't know the best way to get people into that range. And some, way, some ways that we do it, like this, uh, really don't work and actually can be counterproductive. So it's unclear exactly why these women had problems. It could be that their levels were, went so high so quickly that the body tried to catabolize the vitamin D very quickly, and, and they were, were remained vitamin D deficient at the tissue level. So that's a possibility. Another possibility is that the women who were randomized to vitamin D just felt so good that they you know, went to their closet and dusted off their skateboards and their bungee cords and, and did all kinds of things that they hadn't done in years, and that uh, allowed them to have these, these falls and fractures. Um, but it does tell us that, that we need to be very cautious about how we're replacing and that we need to, there definitely needs to be more data about the best way to do this. So this is what I do typically. So I typically don't check 25G um, unless someone has low bone, 
low bone density or if they have a history of fall. So as I mentioned, these are the two outcomes that we know can be impacted by vitamin D replacement. So if I check, check the vitamin D, if it's above 30, I just give the maintenance dose 1,000 international units a day. If you're in the insufficient range, I do 2,000. If you're between uh, 15 and uh, 20, I do the ergocalciferol um, weekly, and then I follow it up with, with D3. And if you're less than 15, uh, I do a little bit more, more ergocalciferol, and that's a situation where I would recheck the 25D. And I more, tend to be more aggressive if a person has a high parathyroid hormone level, suggesting that there's some physiologic response to the vitamin D uh, level. This gentleman actually did not have a high PCH. Or if there are high signs, if there are signs and symptoms of osteomalacia, then I would uh, make things more aggressive. So for this gentleman, uh, because he had, has a relatively low absolute risk of fracture, I wanted to be sure that he didn't have any occult fractures of his spine. So over 50% uh, of fractures, spine fractures that people get, they don't know that they've had them clinically. So uh, spine films can be very helpful in that regard uh, because he would be shifted to a, a higher risk group should he have had fractures, but he did not. I did the ergocalciferol replacement, uh, vitamin, uh, with, so the vitamin D, and I gave him calcium 1,000 milligrams. And I, uh, uh, stressed exercise and, and advised that maybe he should, the sailing was probably okay, but the glade skiing probably should try something else. So my, my plan would have been quite different instead of 51 if he were 71. Uh, because it, in this situation, the, the person's absolute risk of fracture is really much higher. Uh, and so I probably would have treated this person with a, a bisphosphonate. So let's review uh, some of the recommendations in the last few minutes about uh, what to do with patients with, with low bone density or osteoporosis that you're going to treat. So everyone should get calcium and vitamin D supplementation. Smoking cessation uh, for those who smoke and alcohol reduction for those who drink too much. And so that's about uh, three drinks a day. Weight-bearing exercise. And uh, another often neglected but very important part of this initial assessment is assessing their fall risk. And so about 80%, 85% of fractures occur when people fall. So if we can keep people on their feet, uh, we can decrease the risk of fracture. And so a very sensitive question to ask, which is, can open up the, the door to other questions, is, is just to ask if the patient if they're worried about falling. And it turns out that those people who adjust how they move around in the world, uh, because they're worried about falling, they're doing it for a good reason, because they are at risk for falling. And those people can then be uh, referred for, to physical therapy for strength and balance training. Now, what about the pharmacologic options? Uh, so bisphosphonates are the first-line therapy. Women have other options with selective estrogen receptor modulators, like Avista. Uh, estrogen for women with hot flashes, and PTH analogs are all possibilities. I'm going to talk a little bit about bisphosphonates, because uh, th there's a lot of questions about bisphosphonates. So there are four bisphosphonates that we generally use, uh, some oral, some I IV. Uh, for oral bisphosphonates, alendronate is generally preferred. Not only is it more effective than resedronate, but it's also generic. For IV bisphosphonate, zolandronic acid is, is the preferred IV bisphosphonate. With oral bisphosphonates, there are certain GI problems. With IV bisphosphonates, the biggest problem is an acute phase reaction, which is sort of like a flu-like illness that occurs uh, in the two days after 
person is administered the bisphosphonate. Uh, it generally can be attenuated if you pre-treat with Tylenol. One of the big concerns that has, that, uh, is, is, has uh, gotten a lot of press in the last year or so is long-term treatment with bisphosphonates. So it turns out that when you suppress bone turnover with bisphosphonates for a long period of time, very rarely you can get adverse effects. And one of them is uh, atypical fractures, such as trochanteric fractures. And we rely on our, this bone turnover process to repair microfractures from everyday wear and tear. And if you don't have this, then paradoxically you can get bone fragility in these atypical fractures. The other long-term problem is osteonecrosis of the jaw. Uh, so you get uh, jawbone death. Fortunately, these are very rare side effects, but these have prompted calls to, to limit bisphosphonate use to either five years or maybe 10 years, and then have the patient take a holiday. So, the, so that's the, the general pharmacologic treatment. So what about uh, switching him off tenofovir? So would you switch this patient off of tenofovir? It doesn't have any evidence of phosphate wasting. So most say no, and a, uh, a third say yes. So what's the data? And then really, there isn't too much data. So these are two studies that were recently presented, one with pa patients with low bone mineral density on tenofovir who were either randomized to continue on tenofovir or switch over to abacavir. And what you see uh, on the study on the left is that the, uh, for the femoral neck, those with abacavir had a significant increase in uh, uh, bone mineral density, whereas tenofovir remained stable. In the lumbar spine, those who, uh, who continued on tenofovir lost bone, whereas those uh, randomized to abacavir did not. And this, the other study was with tenofovir, single-arm study, tenofovir was replaced with ralpegravir, showing that at both the total hip and lumbar spine, there was a significant increase in BMD. So it, a person with who's at high risk for fracture uh, it, in my view, if there are other antiretroviral options, it may be reasonable uh, to switch the person uh, off of tenofovir. But I think we need more data to make definite conclusions. So in conclusion, DEXA screening is recommended for HIV-infected patients in men greater than 50 and in postmenopausal women. The treatment guidelines should follow those established for the general population. So remember the secondary causes, so it's particularly severe vitamin D deficiency and phosphate wasting. And it's important to use the absolute risk of fracture uh, using FRACs to help guide decision making. And so the follow-up question here, what tool can be used to calculate a person's absolute risk of fracture over 10 years? Framingham osteoporosis score, bone fragility score, FRAC score, or soft score? All right. Excellent. Great. Thanks.
calcium supplementation become associated with heart disease? Mm, yeah, good question. So very topical. Yeah, so there have been several studies which have shown that calcium supplementation has, uh, has been associated with increased risk of myocardial infarction. And um, the mechanism underlying this is, is completely unclear, um, but it does seem to be a very consistent finding. And so what we usually tell people uh, is if, for calcium supplements, if, you're, if you don't have low bone density, you really shouldn't be taking calcium. Uh, you should be trying to get as much calcium in your diet, but don't take calcium supplements. If you do have low bone density or osteoporosis, the goal is to get up to 1,000 or 1,200 milligrams of calcium. You should try to get as much as you can through your diet and supplement the rest. So typically, I have a patient you know, try to do calcium-fortified you know, soy milk or, um, or just regular dairy products if they can tolerate it, and then supplement the rest with the citric acid supplement. So do you follow up your original DEXA scan after you started treatment? Reassessment? Yeah, so good question. So follow-up DEXA scan. So there's a lot of controversy about this. Um, and in England, what they say is, um, what people have argued is that once you've made the decision to, 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 to treat, you treat and then never de check a DEXA again. But I find that getting a, checking a DEXA, uh, I usually do it after a year, and then usually at yearly or, or uh, every two-year intervals, helps to engage the patient. So one of the problems with this phosphonate therapy is that it's the compliance and persistence is terrible. So even postmenopausal women who are among the most compliant patient populations, over half of the half of women aren't taking their bisphosphonates a year after being prescribed them. It's not that the doctor said, you know, you know, you should you should stop this. It's just that people don't take them regularly. And I think that DEXA sort of helps to uh, get people uh, engaged in their care a little bit. Now, an important thing with DEXA, and if you are following bone mineral density uh, with someone on a bisphosphonate or other treatment, we'll, we'll talk bisphosphonate, uh, that stability or increase in bone mineral density is what you're really looking for. So you get the same bang for your buck if the bone mineral density stays stable as if the bone mineral density increases. What you are worried about, though, is someone who has decreasing bone mineral density uh, while on bisphosphonate. And that might, that might signal the fact that that the person's not absorbing the bisphosphonate. So these, these drugs are very poorly bioavailable, and if they're losing bone on bisphosphonate, I typically switch to an IV bisphosphonate. The other thing that, that may prompt is, is another workup for secondary causes, as a, a secondary cause might have uh, uh, come up in the, in, in the intervening time. The FRAC score, I assume, is, was developed in non-HIV infected individuals. Is there a correction that's necessary for HIV? Yeah, that's been addressed. Yeah, that's that. It hasn't. We haven't. Don't have data yet about that. Um, but it's something that we're we're very interested in. We're looking at it in, in the multidisciplinary cohort study. You mentioned that in men, at least, uh, changes in bone start at relatively early, 30. So, do you, would you recommend anybody to get bone men, uh, mineral density estimates under 40? I really don't, um, mostly because the absolute risk of fracture is very low. The only population less than 50 that I would recommend get a DEXA scan is someone who's had a fracture. And that way you could um, determine what their bone mineral density is before you start treatment. Otherwise, I would wait till sort of institute general vitamin D, uh, healthy living kind of uh, recommendations, but not check the 
Yes, someone would like to know whether you start with ergo, ergocalciferol or cholecalciferol. Yeah. So um, ergocalciferol is D2, cholecalciferol is D3. And I usually use ergocalciferol because it's available by prescription. Um, and that way, uh, there, the person is, is more likely to take it. Um, uh, there is some evidence to suggest that D3 supplementation is actually better, has a bigger bang for your buck in terms of, of increasing vitamin D levels. Uh, and there are D3 preparations that are available on the internet, for example. So those are fine to use, but they're not available by prescription. After a holiday, bisphosphonates, do you restart? Uh, good question. So, yeah, so there's a lot of question uh, now about holidays, bisphosphonate holidays. And typically what I do is if I take someone, if I treat someone for five years, I will uh, monitor their bone density after I stop, uh, a year after they stop, to see if there's a decrease in their bone mineral density. I sometimes measure um, bone resorption markers, so CTX, and if the CTX level increases uh, above the, the uh, premenopausal range, um, then that might prompt that suggests that you have a, this increased resorptive state, that might prompt restarting the, the bisphosphonates at that point as well. But there's, um, I think everyone is in this situation where we have all these patients on bisphosphonates. They, they can't be treated forever. We give them a holiday, and then we have to decide to do to, what to do and, uh, after the holiday, when to stop it, when to mo how to monitor during the holiday. Um, there's an increasing survival of perinatally infected individuals uh, who, you know, reach their 20s and they've been exposed to HIV for a long time. Do, should they, do you know anything about bone? Yeah, um, so Mike Yin presented some, some nice data at Croy about perinatal uh, infection, uh, comparing perinatal infection natally infected kids who are about age 20, just that age, to uh, age-matched controls um, from the same uh, environment. And there really were pretty striking differences in their bone density and bone structure. And so we know that your bone density at your peak bone mass is uh, very predictive of what your bone density is going to be uh, at age 65 or 70. So it's going to be really important uh, to follow these people carefully down the road. I, you know, I don't think any intervention is necessary unless there's been a fracture. But these people going down, down the road, it's going to be really that they're going to be at higher risk for fracture. Do you modify your recommendations for women who've been on depot for forever? Well, with, with depot, um, you do get a drop in bone mineral density, uh, but the bone comes back. Uh, so really, pretty remarkable. You can get a decent 5% drop, but once they stop the depot, it goes, goes right back to baseline. So I generally uh, don't, um, I, I don't worry too much about those. Does HIV override the gender differences in the general population? In other words, are, or, or is gender differences still exist? Yeah, in um, I think gender differences do. You know, in HIV, we, we, the people who have been studied uh, are predominantly men, uh, which, is, which is a real different than what, mm -hmm. what, what we have in the general population. So I don't think we have a great sense of, uh, and there also, uh, there's the women of color are, are disproportionate proportionally uh, represented in the HIV uh, population, population, and women of color tend to have higher bone mineral density. Uh, so I don't think that's something that we have a great handle on, the gender differences by uh, in HIV. I think that covers, the, unless someone comes to go to the microphone.
minutes? Well, thank you very much, Charles. Thank you. Thank you.